Well, Jesus is coming back, okay? He will return. He will descend to receive His bride to Himself. His bride is His church, the people that He bought with His own blood. He will descend to receive His bride to Himself and then take the bride to His Father's house. That's what Jesus has told us in John chapter 14. And this is when glorification happens for the believer. This is when those believers who have died will be resurrected. Those who have died in Christ will be resurrected. Those who have been cremated, their bodies will come back together. Those who died at sea, those who died in fires, whatever the case may be, their bodies will come back. God is going to resurrect them. Those who are alive at this time will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Those who are in Christ, who are living at His return, will be caught up together with all of them in the clouds. One day, when that happens, all of our earthly endeavors will come to an end. Can you think about that for a moment? The best that you can, can you put your mind there? In that day, all of our earthly endeavors will end. And not just the time waster type things that you could think about, but even the good things. When that day comes, when Jesus returns, there will be no more great commission for you. No more will you have the commission to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that Jesus taught. There will be no more prayer in that day. What is prayer? Well, we're, we're praying in faith. We're praying to a God we cannot see, and then we'll see and know and be known face to face. There will be no more fasting. There will be no more church schedules, as I just laid out all of our church schedules. There will be no more mentoring and discipleship needed at that time. There will be no more Lord's table where we remember the Lord's death and communion and we proclaim His death until He comes. There will be no more using our spiritual gifts. There will be no more fighting sin. There will be no more death. One day, all of those things are coming to an end at the Lord's return. And these things I just listed are elements of the time leading up to that, the time between the advents of Christ. We just celebrated the first advent of Christ. In fact, we still have it here on the table, don't we? The symbolic representation of when Jesus came and was born of Mary, first time. Then there's the second coming, and in between these comings of Christ, there are many things for us to do. And the whole of our lives as Christians could be described as waiting for Jesus to come again. The whole of your life, as a believer in Jesus, it could be said, the whole of your life is, is waiting for the appearance of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for Him to come back and to change everything you've been used to. All that you've known your whole life is going to be changed when Jesus comes again. And I'll submit to you that the gospel and even life itself is amplified by this reality, the second coming of Jesus. The good news and what you do with the breaths that you're given, it is just magnified by the reality that Jesus is coming back. Last week we dwelt on the first coming of Christ, and now I want us to dwell more explicitly on the second coming and our life in the waiting. I want to start with Matthew 24, 36. It'll be up on the screen, just a single verse. I just want to show you this verse that 
can be a little shocking. Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus said of his return, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. There's a day and hour fixed, appointed by God the Father, that no man knows. And I want to show you this here at the beginning, because here's the big idea. We must always be ready. Because we don't know the day or the hour of Jesus' return, we must live every day. We must treat every hour as though it is the day or the hour. Jesus could return at any moment. And in light of that reality, in the New Testament, the apostles teach us that we must keep the Lord's return front and center in our worldview. So here we're starting with Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. Look here and see how Peter taught that we must hold fast our faith, our belief in Jesus' return, even through the mocking of those who don't believe. 2 Peter 3, starting at verse 3, it says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Verse 5, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We are to hold fast our belief that Jesus is coming back, even when the mockers come with their mocking. And as we wait, as we've been waiting as a church for now 2,000 years, We can appreciate even more the Lord's patience, can't we? That He is not slow as some count slowness. Yours might say He is not slack as some count slackness. He is patient. He is long-suffering, desiring men to come to repentance. Well, the Apostle John taught on this too. Just turn over one page, maybe two pages in your Bible to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Look at how John taught that the reality of Jesus' second coming should motivate our sanctification. It should motivate our desire to live for God. 1 John 2.28 into chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who also who practices righteousness is born of Him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And here it is, verse 3, Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him, that's Jesus, purifies Himself just as He, Jesus, is pure. 
The reality of the second coming of Jesus should motivate you to be pure, to live for Him, to be holy, to be set apart, to be different from the world, to be full of faith, to desire to serve God with your life. And of course, the Apostle Paul talked about the second coming as well. He talked about it quite a bit. And he taught that the second coming will be the ultimate expression of our victory as God's people. In 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 50, Paul says this, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The ultimate expression of our victory in Jesus will be when He comes back and death is swallowed up in victory. When our life, Christ who is our life, appears and it becomes obvious that we are totally, absolutely, 100% rescued from death. What an expression of victory that will be. And notice that Paul began verse 58 with, therefore, he goes on to say, therefore, be abounding in the work of the Lord. Your your work is not in vain in the Lord. He says, therefore, because he says, knowing that Jesus is coming, that your victory is coming, that your life is coming, spend this time now serving Him. Spend this time now toiling for Christ. Spend this time now laboring for the gospel. It is not in vain. It is certain that He is coming. And that is where your heart has to be, Christian. Your heart has to be aligned with the Word of God that you recognize that His coming is certain. One of the biggest mistakes you can make when it comes to thinking about the coming of Jesus is to say that's for the next generation. Or to say that's, that's going to be at least another thousand years. That is not the way the authors of Scripture talked about the second coming. He can return at any moment. You do not know the day or the hour. We must live with this front and center that Jesus' return is more real than death or taxes. You've heard people say two things are certain, death and taxes. Well, we've already learned from the Bible here that death isn't certain because we will not all sleep, will we? Some will be alive at the return of Jesus. And those believers who are alive will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. An old author who's long gone now, M.R. Dahan, he wrote in his commentary on Revelation, The surest thing in all the world is the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surer than death is the coming of the Lord, for my Bible tells me that there will be a generation of believers who will never see death when the Lord returns. The surest thing in all the world is the coming of of Jesus Christ. And it could be any day, any hour, any minute. 
He could return before we say amen here this morning. And it is so important that you embrace this. This is called the doctrine of imminency. His return is imminent. It's at hand. It could happen at any moment. It's very, very important that you realize this is what the Bible gives us, that He could come at any second. It is front and central to this doctrine of the end times, that it all kicks off when Jesus comes unexpectedly, when Jesus comes for His people. And if you are not, as a Christian, if you are not waiting for the Lord's return, then you're really missing a big part of what Christianity is. And you're, you're also missing a motivating hope that we have for our sanctification and for our labor for Him, that our labor is not in vain knowing that He could come at any moment. It will motivate the way that you live for God. And this is a real paradox for us as Christians. The paradox is that if you are not waiting for Christ, you're wasting your life. So often we associate waiting with wasting, right? They're like synonyms. Well, waiting is just a waste. Not with the second coming, Christian. If you are waiting for Jesus, as the Bible has called you to wait for Jesus, you are anti-wasting. You're making use of your life by waiting for your King, your Savior, Jesus. A couple more passages I want to show you as we think about this waiting theology. Romans chapter 8, verses 22 to 25, gets to this point. Look at how many times the word waiting comes up, or the the concept of waiting. In Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 22, it says, For we know that the whole of creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Both times where it mentions the word wait explicitly, it's coupled with that adverb eagerly. You are waiting eagerly. There's an eager expectation for the return of Jesus, for the redemption of your body. And our lives as believers should be characterized by waiting for Christ to redeem us. If someone were to ask you, what are you all about? What's your life all about? If even someone asks you, what do you do for a living? Well, my life is waiting for Jesus. My life is eagerly waiting for the redemption of my body in my Lord Jesus Christ. Our perseverance will be found in our waiting It says again, Romans 8.25, if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Perseverance is found in waiting for Jesus, in hoping for Jesus, in expecting Jesus. Another passage, 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 through 10, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Paul again writes to these believers saying that the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. So they've been great examples of what Christians should be. They've been great examples of a true conversion, that they have really believed in Jesus and their belief has become famous. He says they become so famous, the end of verse 8, that we have no need to say anything. Verse 9, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to, here's our word, and to wait for His Son from heaven, 
whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. You see, as believers in Jesus, as his church, we don't look forward to wrath. And I'm not saying that in a way like, like, who looks forward to wrath, right? Like, I'm looking forward to our New Year's Eve party tonight. I'm not talking about that looking forward. I'm saying we don't expect wrath. We don't believe there will be wrath for us. Because Jesus is our covering. Jesus is our protection. We are in Jesus Christ, and the Father will treat us as such. Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. And so when we wait for the Son to be revealed from heaven, when we wait for the Son of God to return, Jesus Christ, it's for salvation. It's not for wrath. It's for salvation. We don't look forward to wrath. We look forward to Jesus. And notice that it said here in this passage that in their salvation, they turned from dead idols and now they're serving the living and true God And in that service, they are waiting for His Son from heaven. So just as we saw in Romans, you can find perseverance in waiting for Jesus. You can also find true service in waiting for Jesus, true repentance in waiting for Jesus. You're not turning to the idols of the world, but you're turning to the coming Jesus Christ, the one who has already saved you and will save you by redeeming the whole body. What is your life about? Well, it should be looking to the returning Lord and Savior of the world. But just as there is true waiting, there's also false waiting. And I want to talk about that next. We've kind of established here, hopefully, a theology of waiting in the Bible, the New Testament in particular, talking about waiting for the return of the Lord. But now I want to talk about urgency with that. Because when we wait, as Romans 8 says, we wait eagerly. We wait with urgency. We have this expectancy that motivates us, that drives us. And I want to dwell on that for a few moments. Because true waiting, like I said, is anti-wasting. It motivates us to serve God. But not all waiting is true waiting. True waiting is urgent. It's eager. And if someone is waiting for selfish reasons, if someone is waiting in such a way that there is no urgency, that there is no eagerness, then that does, in fact, lead to wasting. There are two kinds of waiting. Selfish waiting and selfless waiting. There's a false waiting that is selfish. There's a true waiting that is urgent and selfless. To put just a simple image in your mind, we've all been at parties or gatherings of some sort before where we're waiting to be served, where uh, there's food or whatever, but it's a mess. It's unorganized. Uh, the, The people are running around dropping things. It's terrible. And there are two different ways that you can wait in those moments. You can sit back and you can say, who designed this thing, you know, and look at your watch and say, what's going on? Or you can get up and help. You can say, okay, this isn't working. I can serve in this way. And you get up and you aid, you help the process to help get things moving a bit. Those are two different types of waiting. And when it comes to waiting for the Lord, there are two types of waiting that we can have. We can have a very selfish waiting where we're looking at our watch and not much else. Or we can have a very selfless waiting where our lives are given over in urgency to the Lord. Selfish waiting looks like waiting for your own personal escape from this world. There's even a word for this. It's called escapism. Certain people who are Christians who know the Lord is returning, they want Him to come back so they can get out of here. Tired of this world. 
And we can all appreciate the sentiment there, can't we? We can all relate to that. We can all understand, yeah, we, we want to get away. This is a bad place, and it's getting worse and worse. It's not getting any better. I want to go where it's perfect. I want to go to the presence of the Lord. I want to go to the provision and protection of God in His presence. But if all that you are doing is waiting for your personal escape from the things that you don't like, you're wasting your life. You are wasting. In the same way, there's this false waiting. There's a true waiting, a selfless waiting, where you see this time of waiting as motivation to service because you recognize that Jesus could come back at any moment and He has called you as your master to be busy at work so that when He returns, you will be rewarded from the master. You see, God doesn't give us the hope of the second coming so you can do nothing. That's the way some people like to frame Christianity. Oh, Christianity, it's all about grace. You get saved and then you do nothing. The second coming stuff. You know, Jesus is coming back, so that means you just sit around and you wait for Jesus. Well, this world needs to improve. Get to work. Well, yes, we are all about grace. And yes, we should be very focused on the second coming. But those elements should not lead us to selfishness. Those elements should not lead us to wasting our lives. Those elements should press us into the reality of serving God with the life that we have. Because we have been commissioned. It's a great commission. You've been given the commission from Jesus to go make disciples, to teach, to baptize. If you only want to evacuate... If you only have in your mind that the second coming is your escape, then you're wrong. Flat out, you're wrong. Only waiting to evacuate is wrong, but instead we should be urgently getting to work. We are slaves and our master, Jesus, may return at any moment. In Luke 18.8, Jesus was giving a parable about prayer And he finishes this parable by talking about how God is going to deliver justice to his people. And then he asks this question in Luke 18, verse 8. Jesus asks the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now that is a very curious question, isn't it? And we have to be thoughtful about how we might want to answer that. What kind of faith is he talking about? Well, he's talking about his coming in the very question, when the Son of Man comes, when he returns, the second coming of Jesus, will there be people expectantly waiting for him? And sad to say, there are even Christians who are not expectantly waiting for Jesus to return. This is something that has to change in our hearts if it is indeed in our hearts. Oswald Chambers said that the great need for the Christian worker is to be ready to face Jesus Christ at any and every turn. Trust no one, not even the finest saint who ever walked this earth. Ignore him if he hinders your sight of Christ. The great need is to be ready to face Jesus. That's the great need for every single one of us, is to be ready to see him at any and every turn. So our goal should be to seek a sense of urgency directly formed by this idea that Jesus could return at any moment. A couple of more passages I want to share with you. Mark 13, Mark chapter 13, verses 32 to 37. Listen to how Jesus instilled urgency in the hearts of His disciples by the way He talked about His coming. Mark chapter 13, starting at verse 32. 
Again, he says, of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now listen to where he goes from there. Verse 33, take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. These are the words of Jesus. Be on the alert. Did you catch how many times he said alert, alert, alert? That's our job is to be ready for His return at any moment. And expounding on this idea of alertness, you have Paul again in 1 Thessalonians again, chapter 5, verses 4 through 11. In 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 4, Paul says, "'You, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief.'" So talking to Christians, talking about Christians, you are not of the darkness. This day is not going to overtake you with wrath. This day is not coming to you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, amen for that, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Sober, faithful, loving, hopeful. These are the elements that are to be cultivated in the church and each individual heart in light of what God has told us, that He's coming again. And we must be this way now because tomorrow we may be out of here. Tomorrow, hope may no longer be hope. Your hope may be fully realized tomorrow. You may be seeing Jesus face to face tomorrow. There's an urgency that we have to have because we have one shot, don't we? One. One shot. Do not waste your life. Don't waste this span of time that God gives you. The hyphen between the years. Don't waste it. You got one hyphen. You got one life to live. If you're a Christian and you've been born again, you only die once. After that happens, so much changes for you. Do not waste your life. All of life is for the glory of your Savior, Jesus Christ. All of life is for the God who made you. And you have one shot. He could come tonight before the clock strikes midnight. And since next year's an election year, I hope that happens. <laughs> One of the saddest effects of treating end times theology as though it's like a second-class realm of doctrine that's not important is that we've lost this motivation, haven't we, in many ways. 
The church has lost this motivating reality that Jesus can come back at any time. Let's keep it front and center and on our minds. So let me finish by giving you five tips for what it means to be ready as we consider waiting urgently, waiting eagerly. Let me give you five areas where we can grade ourselves and see if we are ready. You know, the original title of this sermon was Faith That Does Something. That's what I was going to say. I was going to go in a different direction. Um, And now we'll get to that kind of conversation. Five application points about urgently getting to work, what it means to be ready. So first, we, of course, need to make sure that our paradigm is selfless, that our waiting is selfless. This waiting for Jesus business is not scrolling through your phone in the waiting room, okay? We've all been there. Just doop, doop, doop. That's not what, that's not what this waiting is, okay? This waiting is recognizing that the fields are white for harvest and that we've been commissioned to go out into the harvest, to be laborers in the Lord's field. So let's start with this idea. What does it mean to be ready? It means envisioning, envisioning. You know, sometimes we have nowhere to go or we go nowhere because we don't know where we're going. Sometimes we just, we're in neutral because we don't even know where to go. And so I want us to consider how we can develop a vision for ourselves, for our families, and for our church, a vision that takes us toward truth and love and peace, realized in your life. Not as ideas that are out there, but like ideas that are in your heart, ideas that are in your home, ideas that are in your church, truth and love and peace toward a stronger faith. And as you consider that, envision this. Envision what it is you want to be found doing when Jesus returns. You ever thought about that before? If He comes right now, how sweet would that be? We go up to glory and we tell people we were, we were at church, we were having a church service, we were preaching about Jesus coming back, and then He came back. It was awesome. Yet there are certain times in your life when you're doing things that you shouldn't be doing, where, as John says in 1 John, maybe you'll shrink back at His appearing in shame. Have that in front of you as a real possibility for your life. If Jesus could return at any moment, how would you want to be found when He returns? Here are a few verses to jot down. Acts 24, 16. Paul says, I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. How's that for a goal? That's a great goal, isn't it? To maintain a blameless conscience. Now, is Paul saying, I'm, I do my best to be perfect and never make mistakes, never sin, never be erroneous? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that he's keeping a blameless conscience, meaning as soon as something's on there weighing him down, he's confessing. As soon as there's an issue, he's doing what he can to make it right. He's the the best that he can. He's maintaining a blameless conscience. There's a goal for you. There's a vision to have for what your life could be like. Instead of carrying around guilt and unconfessed sin, here's a vision for your life. Confess your sins to God and to one another and to heal what has been broken. Again, this is a verse we already looked at, but 1 Corinthians 15, 58, directly in light of the second coming. Here's a vision for your life. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. How sweet would it be for the Lord to find you, not just having faith, but to be abounding in His work. 
And in 1 Thessalonians 5, three quick hit verses. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always. You memorized a verse today. Good job. Rejoice always. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Memorize two verses. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And verse 18, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Have that vision for your life. Truth, love, peace, faith, all being brought to bear on your life to be doing these things, pressing toward these things. In every one of those passages, the word always was being used. To have it in front of you always, abounding in His work, keeping a blameless conscience, praying without ceasing, giving thanks always. A second element that we can look at is one I just mentioned, which is praying. So envisioning and praying what it means to be ready for the Lord's return. The Apostle Paul told the Romans, the Philippians, the Colossians, the Thessalonians, and Philemon that he always prayed for them. Now that's pretty impressive, isn't it? He always prayed for them. But there are, of course, certain people in our lives that we can and should always pray for, our family or uh, people we have a particularly close connection with. Pray, pray. Remember when Jesus asked His question in Luke 18, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth when He returns? That was in regard to prayer. That was regarding the widow who kept pursuing justice. Only now will we be praying. Only with this life will we be praying. What it means to be ready means you're praying. And I would submit to you this. You cannot live for Christ or be ready to meet Him without prayer. You can't be ready to meet your Lord without praying to your Lord. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, following the amazing armor of God passage, it says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. All these words we've been talking about, you see the always concept there. Pray at all times. You see alertness brought up there. You see perseverance brought up there. It's all tied together. To be ready for the return of Christ means that you're praying. You're envisioning. You're praying. Thirdly, I'll submit to you, creating. What does it mean to be ready for the Lord? Envisioning, praying, creating. Being made in God's image means that you get to manage stuff. You get to steward stuff on the earth. God gives you possessions. God gives you money. God gives you a family. And you get to manage and create by His grace. It's a great privilege that only those made in His image have. It's very good for you as a Christian to build stuff very good. And to build stuff that will last. How's this for a mindset? Live every day as though Jesus could be coming back in the next 10 minutes, but plan as though He's not coming back for 10 generations. Build stuff. Create stuff. Create an inheritance that can be passed down. Develop stability in a family that can be passed on to the next generation. Create relationships that are marked by peace and by justice. In Psalm 34, verse 14, Psalm 34 says, Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Blessed are the peacemakers. Create peace. Go out and create peace. And justice. Seek to do justice as far as it depends on you. In Amos chapter 5, starting at verse 14, it says, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you just 
as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Create good relationships as far as it depends on you. Create celebrations where you and other believers can rejoice with each other. We want to rejoice with those who rejoice. And also create time and create space where you can weep with those who weep. A place where you can counsel, where you can sincerely love on the brokenhearted and encourage them in the Lord. Envisioning, praying, creating. Fourthly, proclaiming. Proclaiming. As it says in 1 Corinthians 11 about communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That should be on your heart, Christian, to proclaim His death until He comes. Because remember, when He comes, you're done proclaiming. When He returns, your proclamation days are over, in the same sense anyway. He will be present with us. So we want to hold forth the faithful word in faith as we hold it fast. The commission truly is great. This is in John chapter 4, John 4, starting in verse 34. Listen to what Jesus taught His disciples. He says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit, for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap uh, that for which you you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. What an amazing teaching from Jesus that you've got a field to work in, a field of souls, We don't look back and say, well, four months, and then we can go out and evangelize. Four months, and then we can go out and work in the field. Jesus tells you the fields are ready now. The proclamation of Jesus dying and rising again begins now. Commenting on this passage, J. Carl Laney says, as the reapers would cut and harvest grain, so the disciples would have the opportunity to harvest souls telling Samaritans about the Messiah and His coming kingdom. And whereas a harvest of grain would provide physical nourishment, this harvest had eternal consequences. Good commentary. Reaping souls has to be an eternal priority for all of us. Fifthly, fifth and final application point. Being ready for Jesus is envisioning, praying, creating, proclaiming, and sacrificing. The heart of Christian living is to selflessly serve. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, that He, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That was Jesus' view, not to be served, but to serve other people. In Philippians chapter 2, it talks about this, saying He emptied Himself and became a servant and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in so doing, He considered others as more important than Himself. Wow. You cannot be a faithful disciple of Jesus without Jesus' heart in sacrificing. This is in Luke chapter 18, again Luke 18, starting in verse 28. Peter tells Jesus, we've left our own houses, our own homes, and followed you. And look at what Jesus says. Really take this to heart. 
Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Take that one to the bank, would you? Would you, would you just see Jesus' promise there, the reward that is there? That's amazing grace. You will never, ever regret laying your life down for Jesus Christ. You will never regret sacrificing for the God who made you. So being ready for Jesus is to envision, to pray, create, proclaim, and sacrifice. You could also focus on our five core values as a church that we have on the posters here in this room. Uh, Those are also very helpful to uh, consider your own life, to grade and adjust accordingly. But we do all this with the idea that Jesus is returning at any moment. In Psalm 90, verse 12, two more passages I want to share with you. Just one verse here, Psalm 90, verse 12. Moses saying, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Your days are numbered. Number your days and gain a heart of wisdom. Charles Spurgeon said of that verse, It is most meet that the heart, which will so soon cease to beat, should, while it moves, be regulated by wisdom's hand. I wish I could write like that. My goodness, that's beautiful. A short life should be wisely spent. We have not enough time at our disposal to justify us in misspending a single quarter of an hour. So in closing, I want to read to you another great commission from Jesus. This is Luke chapter 12, 36 to 40. I'll read this and then pray. Jesus tells His disciples, and by consequence, He tells us, Be like men who are waiting for their master when He returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to Him when He comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when He comes. Truly I say to you that He will gird Himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And I guess he's not coming by the end of this sermon. So let's keep urgently waiting. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this promise that you are coming. Help us to live each day with that in view, to seek to honor you, to serve you with our life, to bless you from the heart in all that we endeavor to do, all for your glory. Give us that urgency. Give us that eagerness. Give us that expectancy. Help us to see how we can use our lives for your sake and not waste them. We do not want to waste what you've given us. Help us by your grace to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. If the praise band will come back up, we've got our New Year's song to sing. This is uh, the tune of that New Year's song. And I can say that because it's the only New Year's song, I think. But it's got Christian words to it that are better than whatever the original was. And so please stand and we'll sing this together.